This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Otson Audible's podcast. Matt Prame, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Monday edition, Monday mailbag edition, and... Um, I, I think this is the type of year, time of year, excuse me, where um, the mailbag, it reflects this. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of topics that people want to discuss. Uh, basketball is just over. People want to look towards that. People want to look about football. They, they want to do recruiting. There's now baseball topics trickling into the mailbag. This is part of the, the period where we can get all football and sometimes we could get very little football on the, on the mailbag. Yeah, today we're going to do a little football, and then we're going to jump into some basketball. And, Jared, we're going to finish the show talking about baseball. I think a debut, nice. a debut question about baseball on a mailbag. So get ready for that to close the show. Um, we're going to start with a question from at Tosh Myers. Tosh is one of our most frequent question askers. Thanks for being so active. We appreciate it. Um, question today, what is your biggest concern about Dan Laning? You can't say his inexperience. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, I have a couple. I think the first one that jumps out to me is, I guess, the lack of uh, experience in the West Coast. Um, and that re- kind of relates to two previous coaches who took off shortly, you know, with ties to other parts of the country. I know the differentiator being that Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal had probably more close ties to certain programs as I mean, Mario went back to his alma mater. Willie went back to his, where he'd spent most of his career in, in Southern Florida. Dan is from Kansas. I don't think Kansas or Kansas state or Missouri or any of those schools are going to be schools he would pick over Oregon. Um, but he spent time at Georgia. He spent time at Alabama. I mean, these are big programs in that part of the country and the SEC he has experience there. Um, that kind of always catches my, my probably my radar and probably just a little bit more, frankly, because of recent events than it should. Um, I think from a recruiting perspective, it's still a little bit of an unknown. I think it's, again, we've talked about it's a little unfair to draw too many conclusions, but so far, not a ton of success. And I don't know, could some of that be just the lack of awareness of who he is on the West Coast and lack of building connections out here? Um, I know he spent some time at Arizona State as a GA, so it's not like he hasn't been out here, but something to kind of something I've kind of thought about a little bit. Um, you know, a big part of this for building recruiting connections is, is just time spent. And, you know, you can't just walk into a coach's office or a living room for a recruit and suddenly it clicks. You're going to have to spend some time. And um, for Dan and, and some a, a, a fair amount of the staff, there's some guy, I mean, Tosh is from the West Coast. Kenny Dillingham's from the West Coast. So I think smart on his part for his two coordinators to be West Coast guys. But Dan himself, I think, needs to establish roots out here. We saw with Mario, he had one year as an offensive coordinator to kind of do that. Then he's promoted to head coach. That worked. Even Willie had a couple years at Stanford previously where he was, I think, the quarterback's coach or offensive coordinator. I forget what exactly. Maybe it was running backs or wide receivers coach. I have to go back and look. But he had some experience out West. This is this – is, and again – the fact that my biggest concern is not related to what he has done as a football coach. And again, we can't use experience, which is probably where we would have all pointed. 
I think it's not a bad thing that the biggest concern I have right now is just like, he's only lived in Eugene for like four months. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, I, I think um, it might be just like the operational aspect of being a head coach. Um, and that's just because he's not, he's same age as me. I'm 35. Uh, and He's been in college football for a while, sure, but um, it's always – but the, the age is a little bit of my concern, but it's more so of just overall this is his first head coaching gig. And I, I think it's not really a big issue for me, but it's the one that I would say here because uh, he's coached under Kirby Smart and Nick Saban. Um, so he, he has seen some of the gra- greatest coaches operate, but it would be just operational, like – how much time do you devote this specific drill? How much time do you vote in the off season to game planning for each opponent that you're going to be playing? Um, it's not coaching like, like actual, Hey, you're going to do this. You're going to do that in this drill. It's more just like the operational side of running a program just because like he's never done it before. And that's kind of something that I would always bring up for a first time head coach. And Oregon in 2022 is not the Oregon of 1995 when Mike Bellotti took over the job and it was his first head coaching gig. Um, like that's just, it's a different beast. Now the expectations are much higher. The pressure to win is much higher. Uh, and, and if you don't, you know, that's going to come back to, well, he wasn't ready, which I, I don't buy into. This is a good question from Tosh. I think we all basically have danced around the fact that our answers are inexperience because we don't know a lot about the program yet and we've only watched a couple of spring practices. Um, But mine kind of aligns more on Eric's side with like the connections and overall coaching hires. Um, I'd like on paper all the coaching hires that Dan Lanning has made so far. Um, They seem like they will you know, be productive and be helpful in continuing on and, and Oregon's success in the last recent years. But there's a chance it doesn't. There's a chance that Tosh Lupoy, who hasn't been a defensive coordinator since 2015 or 2016, kind of comes back to haunt them. Or Adrian Clem, who comes from the offensive line coach from the Pittsburgh Steelers and comes down to coach at Oregon. Like, that should be a step up in terms of, like, uh, of coaching production because he coached in the NFL, there's a chance it isn't. Um, you know, you have guys like Matt Powledge who come over and have this much larger role now at a higher, at a bigger university. And, you know, there's a lot of question marks along with all the good things that I think Dan Lanning has brought with this, with these coaching hires. Um, and so this kind of goes into Eric's point about relationships along the West Coast. If things don't go well, then where does he turn to then? Because it might not go well on the recruiting trail because there aren't a lot of West Coast established like uh, established connections. Okay, so then, so then where does he go when they need a, a new blank coach because someone is hired from somewhere? Um, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, realistically, the answer here is inexperience, and that's why this is a good question from Tosh because we can't use inexperience as our answer. Um, but I think just you know kind of going around the bush here of, of the big word of inexperience and and connections and, and coaching hires for the future is, is 
how I see the biggest biggest concerns so far. Can I reframe this in what I think is kind of a straw man? But could sure. could could you make an argument that Dan is a byproduct of having coached at Georgia, which was already an extremely established defense, which is already a, Kirby Smart's a defensive mastermind. They have incredible talent there, and what he's you know his accomplishments at Georgia. And again, this is a straw man. I don't know if I believe this. I'm just kind of throwing this out there to see if it connects right. a little. But like. Could you make an argument that Dan fell into a great spot? Not fell is probably the wrong term because he had to work to get there. And at his age, it, it's not frequent at all. Somebody in the early 30s is a defensive coordinator at a school like Georgia that's literally competing for championships. But could you argue some of his success was less about Dan and him, some of his schematics and more about kind of the situation he was in? And could that be a concern of like, and I think this is a, a and I bring this up now because I can see this becoming a potential narrative if the defense isn't awesome right away. Mm -hmm. um, and it probably already is somewhat of a narrative in Georgia and other parts of the country where they will point to the fact that Kirby Smart was the defensive coordinator at Alabama under Nick Saban, and he was awesome there. I know Nick had his hands in the cookies there, and you could probably make similar comments about Kirby at that point in time when he was at Alabama before he came to Georgia. But it, does, does that bear like does that a concern for either of you really of like did he come is he is he coming from Georgia and his success there was Georgia related more than Dan related I mean is that connected all or I mean because it probably doesn't for me but I can see why that would be a concern for some um kind of maybe but I would argue like Saban and Smart are very good coaches and I highly doubt that both of them would have hired Dan Lanning um, right. if there was a possibility that he was going to be a flop of a, of a coach. Like, I just don't think maybe you get through one of those hiring processes um, once, but I don't think it happens twice. This is somewhat of a concern. I've definitely seen that narrative floating around. And I think that it's, uh, a, I don't know. I think it's a normal one because you kind of look at what the, Nick Saban coaching tree has been and you have all of these great offenses and all of these great defenses in the last, I don't know, decade, 12, 15 years now with, with Saban at the helm at Alabama. And all of these guys kind of have not done well, except for like a few random seasons and Kirby Smart, yeah, Kirby. who's done really well as the former defensive coordinator for Alabama. And Jimbo Fisher is another one. But, you know, so... Kirby Smart is now at the age and his um, amount of years as a head coach at Georgia where he is now producing his own coaching tree. And the the narrative that um, Dan's defensive performance last year was strictly because of talent and Kirby and the overall schematics of the program, I've seen that floated around. And I, I understand why people would think that because they're going to go produce like four first-round picks. And having four first-round picks in your defense – is a lot better than having zero first round picks on a defense. Those defenses with that many first round picks are usually pretty good. Um, but I, I agree with um, Matt. I think it was your sentiment where it's like, there's, there's a reason why this dude was hired by these guys at such a young age. Um, I kind of approached the same thing with Kenny Dillingham when he was offensive coordinator at Auburn, when he was 29 years old, like that's impressive. You know, like that shouldn't just be kind of slept on here and, uh, so to me, I, I understand why people could believe that narrative. Um, I don't think a lot of Oregon fans do. I think a lot of like USC fans would or Oklahoma fans who 
thought that they were going to get him, but instead got Brent Venables. Um, and, you know, it's it's tough because we haven't really seen in-game action from a Dan Lanning coach team. Um, but, yeah, I would expect if the defense does poorly to start the season that this might actually become a thing when he doesn't have as much talent as he did at Georgia. Um, or they could just be really good still because he could just be a really good defensive-minded head coach, and that's all that matters. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear. I'm sorry. I think there's someone – they're, like, moving some – stuff outside so it's kind of loud here um but i wanted to just like i i'm in agreement here and i i just want to point out like it's really hard to fall upward at that age like without cause yeah. like extremely difficult and i don't doubt that there's due diligence done i just i know that's going to be a narrative i've already seen it kind of pushed a little bit not yep. on our not on our side as much as the, just some national stuff and i just kind of wanted to throw that out there to you know, it, does that land? And I'm sure fans listening might be thinking that that's something I believe in. It's not. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there to kind of deviate from the conversation a little bit. All right. Second one from at Scotty Harper 24. I'd like if you guys briefly touched on the position battle for the starting slot receiver, seeing as seven was with the ones, which was kind of a surprise to me with how much Chris Hudson saw the field last year. Maybe talk about the different skill set each guy brings to the table. Go Ducks. Um, yeah, you know, and, and one thing I want to say that just kind of stood out, and I think we touched on it on Saturday's podcast after talking with Dillingham quarterbacks, but one of the things Kenny said was just like, they aren't really ones, they aren't really twos, they aren't really threes. I don't know how much I really want to totally fully buy into that as much as it's just, it's so early in camp that I don't think you want to make too much from these position battles. But certainly what you can say, and I, I, I say that because I don't want the implication to be like, seven is ahead of Chris in some sort of position battle because it's mm -hmm. so early that it's kind of negligent to even like suggest that. Um, but it's notable seven is getting first team reps regardless of how you want to frame it, I think. And um, seven is somebody who I think the move to receiver when that was finalized got me pretty excited. Um, he reminds me of the Anthony Thomas. I know that was the comparison I think Greg Biggins made on 247 Sports um, for, as a prospect for, for seven when he was coming out. Um, they are, you know, he's slider of build. He is extremely explosive and his ability to make people miss in space stands out. Like there's been a couple of drills that we've seen where it's like, oh, wow, like he is yeah. not easy to get down. Um, it's like trying to tackle a pig or something in space. He's just all over the place. Hard to get. He's get just <laughs> he's just not the guy you want in the backfield trying to block. <laughs> yes. And that, and that was probably the biggest <laughs> issue, right? I mean, like yeah. he's not going to be a great, you know, in pass protection. So putting him in the slot, I think is a great a great move. Um, I would, I would expect eventually like these guys could probably both be on the field at times, you know, in, in terms of getting into different packages, that would be kind of exciting. Um, different skill sets, like uh, seven's probably a little more sudden. Um, he's a little smaller and again, in build, uh, Chris is, I think proven to be able to run the, you know, the deeper routes with some success. Um, I think Chris has also proven he can play not in the slot and play the X or the Y position, which is, I think based upon what Kenny said, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jared, they're sticking with similar terminology from the outside receivers, I think. Similar. Sort of. It's like X, Y, Z, and then X, A, H, T. H. Yeah, yeah, H is. And H back and the T back. Yeah, I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, like, but, but my, my point is like. Similar. I could, yeah. He could play an X or a Y, or he could play slot, I think. Um, I, I, I think it's pretty intriguing because we were concerned about the wide receiver position before and i think right now for a couple of days of spring like i'm numbers wise i'm still a little concerned because it's like there's got like 10 guys but i think 
another name, Josh Delgado, is somebody who people have really spoken about in you know in, in lofty terms, and I think we forgot about him. He was out all year with injury last year. Another guy who's been working in the slot. Like I think Oregon's depth in the slot is certainly better than I thought it would be. And um, but my again, my like big takeaway is like I, I wouldn't really and and also just like in the parallel to the quarterback position thing. I think I've seen a lot of people. I, I saw the I saw an Auburn site like. Uh, re- with a bunch of reactions to Ty Thompson being ahead of Bo Nix, and it's like that's sort of like silly season stuff. Like, come on, it's it's like a, it's the fourth practice of spring. Sure, that's what it, what we saw. It doesn't, as Kenny has said, like they're rotating all the time. Like, don't take too much away from it. That doesn't. I'm not trying to diminish like our reporting of it because we saw what we saw and it was accurate. But like at the same time, I just want fans to be kind of aware that like it's so early in spring that like what is on what is taking place in early April is, is not probably going to matter a ton come September. Um, needless to say, I do think seven and Chris will both play a lot this fall. I think, I think Hudson's ability to play inside or out kind of opens the door for the rotations in the slot, especially when you combine it with the lack of depth that Oregon has just in the receiver room in general. Um, I, I, I think you could make a case that Hudson is Oregon's best receiver. And so you can literally go out and game plan, hey, we, we want Hudson all over the all over the field. We want him in the slot. We want him on the outside. We want to get him in, into these mismatches. And we want to try and, and, and put him in this position, which will send him all over the field, thus opening the door for more action for Seven McGee. Um, and I think with Seven McGee's versatility of running the ball as a running back, but also being able to play receiver gives you more options. And it goes back to what Dillingham said on Saturday is their job is to put their players in one-on-one situations. And those are two guys that you have to be able like, you have to be able to give them opportunities because they're good playmakers with the ball in their hands. Um, and it's just all about now making sure you find ways to, to, to get both guys on the field. To go off the question that was originally asked to just like kind of compare the two, uh, it, like seven is just somebody who's way more explosive than Chris Hudson is. He's, uh, way, way more slippery. He's a, a lesser route runner than Chris Hudson is, and he probably won't go for the deep ball too often. He's more like a wheel route out of the backfield as his deep threat, but you get the ball to him in open space and it could turn into something special just like DeAnthony Thomas was. This is why I would love to have Seven McGee as like the kick returner or the punt returner, whatever the case may be. Um, for Chris Hudson, Matt makes a good point. You could definitely argue that he's the best wide receiver in Oregon right now. I don't think he has the most potential out of the groups uh, or the wide receiver group at yeah, Oregon, probably. but I do think that he's probably the best one that they have on roster right now. You saw the last couple of games of the season where – Oregon finally decided that throwing it deep was a good idea. Um, <laughs> he flourished um, against Utah, against Oklahoma, um, against Oregon State. He, he was really good, and those were glimpses that you saw his freshman year in 2020. Um, he's a solid post runner. Um, he's just he's slippery like Seven McGee is. I just don't think that they're. I don't think that he's as good as Seven, but I don't think a lot of people are as good as Seven. So that's like. You know, it's the, kind of an unfair comparison for Chris Hudson. They both do similar things, similar-ish things. They're both kind of similarly built. Um, but Matt makes a good point of bringing Chris Hudson like to that X position and bringing 
uh, seven in the slot and trying to make those two work as a parallel, um, which is, I think, something that could that should be on the radar of Kenny Dillingham. Um, I still really love the idea of, of bringing seven out of the backfield. Like he's a natural running back and you can mind, you can say he's a wide receiver in these, in these drills, but to bring him out of the backfield is going to be way more comfortable to him than it is to, to Chris Hudson. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll end up finding out eventually, maybe at the spring game, maybe before then. Um, but I think it is notable that seven has getting is, is getting some time with the ones, but like Eric said, like Matt said, I wouldn't read too much into it. It's still really early. Chris Hudson is a returning guy. So is Seven McGee. But Chris Hudson has way more experience. Seven McGee is changing positions or has already changed position, is learning a new one. You know, these are – it's I don't know. It's still extremely early. I wouldn't put too much into it. Um, just know that it is a good thing that Seven and Chris are seemingly splitting the first team reps. Seven, somebody I want to see involved in the screen game a lot. Yeah, you know, and and and, and Chris too, but like seven in particular, you know, the screen game can in, in, in a lot of cases be kind of an extension of a handoff, of a of a, almost like mm -hmm. a toss, you know, and that kind of thing. It's it's an easy, it's a convertible pass, um, but it also gets a player in space in one on one situations, and that kind of falls in line with what Denlingham has talked about. He hasn't addressed how much they'll use, you know, tunnel screens, wide receiver screens, different varieties of of those kind of plays, but. I'd imagine a guy like Seven is somebody you want to get the ball to in space out there at least two to three times a game if you can um, to, to, to just see what he can do because all it takes in a screen – I mean, those are one-on-one -on -one matchups, right? That's the goal typically. And sometimes it's one-on-nothing matchups if the blocking is set up well enough in front of you. Um, and that's another thing to worry about, I think, is, is the team's best blockers graduated or are no longer the team. Like Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red and Devin Williams were – and Micah Pittman – sometimes but like those guys collectively were pretty good blockers and i think chris started to develop late in the season it's kind of hard to really draw too much from dante and troy from what we've seen or i don't even i don't know i didn't watch enough chase coda at ucla to know how good of a blocker he is out there but like that, that would be one thing that i would be a little concerned about in the screenplays if we're getting kind of big picture it's just you lost some really good perimeter blockers um you know kind of how does that work out but regardless like Seven might be a guy where if you even if you miss a block, he's able to make a couple guys miss and get up field. So I, I'm I'm curious to see kind of that dynamic. I think he's somebody to really you could really rely on in space out there, and, and it will be really fun to see kind of what it looks like for him to kind of be involved in a variety of different ways of getting him the football. Because I'm not anticipating, although we did see him run what was probably similar to a real route, Jared, for that yeah. 50, 20 yard completion. So I shouldn't say it's not something we won't see, but like. In my mind's eye, I guess I'm expecting more underneath screen routes, slants, something like that. That's what I think too. You know, and get him in space rather than yeah. a vertical threat like a Chris, which is maybe a decent way of differentiating the two, which might not be totally fair, but sort of that's my kind of instinct right now. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're going to move on to some basketball talk. This is a question from at ZBGreen1. What is the significance of Mookie Cook's commitment? And who are some other potential commits for 2023? What is the ceiling of this class? Hashtag Odson Audible. Uh, Mookie Cook committed to Oregon. That was, was that Friday? That was Friday. That was on my birthday, April 1st. Uh, It was not an April Fool. It was a real thing. Uh, This was a pretty big thing, and I know Matt did a great job of covering it. We didn't get a podcast up. I wanted to address it. This question allows us to do that. Um, This is a really big commitment for this program, and especially with – I know he's not going to be on this upcoming year's roster. We don't think, Matt. You can clarify that if if I'm wrong. No. Uh, But the momentum of this last season was not great, but to be able to land a player of his caliber, again, like one of the best prospects the school has ever landed – a couple of weeks after a pretty disappointing season concludes, like that's huge. And then the potential of like building around him in a class, again, when we talk in the past about like, okay, you land a quarterback early in a football recruiting class. And that kind of allows you to build around that. Cause you know, you've got elite one elite or two guys there in the class. Like you've got Mookie, you've got Jackson Shellstad, two 2023 in-state kids. Like I imagine Oregon will probably be in position to put together a pretty strong class in 23. Yeah, Oregon landed arguably the highest rated player ever. The only player that is his equal is Bull Bull. They both have the same rating, um, not point nine nine eight nine. Um, that that is their twenty four seven sports composite ranking. Bull Bull is the only one that's equal. He's not higher than than Mookie, but he's equal. So it's literally the highest rated kid to ever commit to Oregon. Um, you look at the 2023 class, he now ja- joins Jackson Shellstead, um, a, a four-star top 75 player um, out of Westland point guard, um, a, a guy that will show up. And I, I think from a contribution standpoint, from like a minute standpoint, I think it's fair to say that Jackson will probably have similar you know, comparisons to Peyton Pritchard. Um, when he showed up as, as a freshman, someone that should play on a really good team and someone that could potentially start. And P- Pritchard did not start his career right away. Uh, he, I think it was like game four, maybe that he got into the starting lineup. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if Jackson starts right away. It wouldn't surprise me if he comes off the bench, but nonetheless, he'll play. Mookie will probably start as well. Um, and that then leaves the door. Well, what's next? And a lot of it will depend upon who is on the roster because it's over a year out. And as we know, in college basketball players transfer, um, that will happen this off season again, probably. Um, I bet you one or two more players will leave this current team. So it's really difficult to project, um, what will happen after next season, but, I think Oregon probably wants to go and say, we want, we want three high school guys 
and they've got a point guard, they've got a wing. So now it's about finding a big man, whether that's a center um, or whether that's a power forward. Uh, it's probably going to be a big. It's, it's probably going to be a big guy for that third spot. And the most obvious one is someone I'm close to putting a crystal ball in for, who would become the program's highest rated commit ever. And that's Kwame Evans Jr., the number two player in the country from Montverde Academy in Florida, 6'9", 200 pounds. Um, they are kind of perceived as the leader right now for Kwame Evans Jr. Uh, he's supposed to take an official visit later this month. Um, and then another player that would, if they don't land Evans, that they're in a good position for, which would be the best player in program history, uh, Omaha Bilu, uh, another power forward from Link Academy in Branson, Missouri. Um, he is the sixth best player uh, in the country. Uh, excuse me, he would not be the highest rated player. Sorry, I, I, I got numbers crossed. But nonetheless, another five-star, another top ten player uh, in the country. Um, so you look at that's kind of what they're looking at from a prep standpoint is a forward. And then, you know, I, I, I think the 2023 class would, would – what happens after that will be dictated by just the roster comings and goings between now and next spring. The commitment of Mookie is just another example of why on-court basketball success isn't always the only determinant of landing good recruits. You know, this is a player who Dana Altman offered when he was in eighth grade. So, you know, was that four or five years ago? This is somebody who has, uh, kept up with the program, who has visited Oregon multiple times, who has established really good connections with the program. Uh, this is a player who switched high schools, his uh, his sophomore and his junior year, I believe, from Jefferson High School in Portland to Compass Prep in Arizona, basically, you know, right in Arizona State and in Arizona's uh, backyard for them to go recruit. But he's a player that has stayed true to his, his – uh, I guess now his commitment to Oregon, but then his relationship to Oregon and the Oregon staff. And so, you know, these are, these are some reasons to get excited about the program moving forward that even though the last year and a half hasn't been, you know, the most ideal for the, for the state of Oregon basketball affairs, it still hasn't affected who they've been able to land off the court. You know, this will be three, five stars in 2022 and 2023 combined with Dior uh, Khalil Ware and Mookie. Um, Jackson Shellstad is another four-star. Um, Tyrone Williams, I believe, is the last name. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, one of the best junior college players in the country. And like Matt was just saying, they are still going to be in contention for another five-star in 2023. So I think this is good. I think this is really good timing, um, especially for the fan base of Oregon. Um, if the women's basketball team could land a top – three player in the class of 2023, Eric, that'd be cool. Um, so just, you know, let Kelly know that that, that would be a good idea. <laughs> uh, keep an eye on Brea Cunningham. There we go. So these are, this, this is a way to excite the program. This is a way to excite the fans into thinking the world is not collapsing and the sky is not falling. And, you know, bringing in Mookie Cook is a really, really good way to do it. Um, you know, top five player in the country, someone who has, I think when the initial rankings came out, he was three or four. So this is not a guy who has dropped. This is not a guy, obviously, who has 
you know, flown up the rankings. Why hasn't he flown up the rankings? Because there's only three more spots or four more spots ahead of him. So this is a player that I, I think can can make the difference in the program. Um, it's another player along with Bull Bull, Luke King, Troy Brown Jr. That despite the fact that Dana Altman's system isn't like built around giving one guy the ball all the time, he still is going to get five-star kids to come here. He is still going to prepare them for the NBA, and he is still going to get these guys drafted. Mookie fits more in line with the type of players that have really excelled at Oregon. I want to point mm-hmm. out like the 6'6 six, six to 6'8 six, wings who are really athletic, who have some versatility, who defend, who are good at getting to the rim. I mean, this kid is ex- – I mean, you go watch some of the highlights of him. He can jump out of the gym, and his mm-hmm. length and his quickness and all of that is really impressive. And, again, the thing – I think the question is, like, how much does that jump shot – come along and if and it's not a, it's a good looking jump shot i just think right now it's a question of the percentages like if that comes along completely now it's like this kid will be and, and based upon where he's ranked he probably already will be but like he legitimately will be in conversations for being a top five yeah. top three kind of that conversation and be a draft pick um which is something that is huge for program development is is getting i mean because i think one of the knocks on oregon i don't think it was fair at all because injuries took president here but like Bobo comes in as a top five recruit and he ends up getting drafted in the second round and it becomes some sort of criticism that Oregon didn't utilize him right or he didn't excel there. That was because of injury. That was because Bull was a really unique kind of strange prospect to begin with. Mookie is somebody who is kind of his skill set is tailor-made for being a top NBA draft pick. And if he can come in and have a big season and maybe elevate himself and really be in conversation for the top NBA pick in that 2024 NBA draft, that's going to be huge for continuing kind of the narrative. Not that Oregon is having any issues landing five stars, but you do go back and look at the history of the five stars they've landed. Like Matt had a story up on the side of the highest rated recruits Oregon has has added. And, you know, the, the five stars haven't really landed in terms of college success, probably like you'd like. And I do think Mookie is going to be the one, I, mean, I think Khalil Ware too, potentially this year, are going yeah. to be the ones to maybe change some of that narrative, which is kind of just the way it goes in college basketball. And obviously the women's team had the exact same issues with a bunch of five-star recruits and only a couple of them have worked out recently. I mean, it's, there's a couple dominoes that have to fall and you have to be realistic and, and say that this is kind of asking for a lot, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that the 2023-2024 season, which is when Mookie Cook would be a freshman, Oregon theoretically there is a path to this scenario. They could start five-star Khalil Ware. They could start five-star Kwame Evans Jr. They could start five-star Mookie Cook. They could start the JUCO leading scorer Tyrone Williams, who scored 28 points per game this past season. And they could start either five-star point guard Dior Johnson or Jackson Shellstead. Like, talent will not be an issue. And this is why... Um, not to turn the question too crazy, but this is why I don't think Dane Altman's going to ever leave Oregon for another job unless all of a sudden Duke says, we don't want John Fryer to be the head coach. Uh, come on down. Um, like That's the only scenario where like a school calls that you have to go. Um, and there's maybe five out there that fit that demographic. Um, he's not going to leave because the talent at Oregon the next – next season and the next three or four years will never be as good on paper as it, as it's been. 
uh, in previous years. And you, you don't walk away from that. And they're, there's, they're going to be in a position where fair or not final four will be discussed. I don't think it's going to be expected, but it's going to be, Hey, this team has the talent to get to the final four. Yeah. And like you prefaced all of that with, you know, there are a lot of things have to fall on the right, you know, the right track to get all that talent accumulated at the same time. Um, yeah, if they come out in that season and march out with that starting lineup, um, yeah, they're going to have a lot of sky-high expectations for them. That's a lot of talent. You know, that's like a Kentucky team in the Pac-12, or that's like a Duke team in the Pac-12, just full and chock, like, you know, chock full and loaded of four high four-stars and five-star recruits. Um, they just got to be able to play. And that's that's the biggest issue I see going forward. It's just how they all are, the continuity on the court. Um, it's always lovely when you get all this type of talent because if they figure it out, then they're probably more talented than those they are going against. Um, you know, in recent memory, and this is especially due to injuries, that hasn't always been the case. Um, but you still see, like, when a team gets on a roll, and even if it's later in the season with these five-star players, um, they can usually be the team's best players regardless of if they get drafted or, you know, if they're just a second round pick or whatever, you know, somebody like Lou King, when he was paired with Peyton Pritchard, yeah. those were your best one, two players on the team. And that was um, a season where, you know, I really liked Lou King as a prospect, but he doesn't even get drafted. And I think he has just a handful of games in the NBA type of deal. And so, yeah, in, in the 2023 season, if that is the case, then, you know, I think that they should be a Pac-12 favorite and all that. Um, that would be, gosh, an amazing team to watch. Just off the top of my head, like just thinking about, you know, who could be in control of the ball and who could be, uh, you know, like picking, rolling, and dunking all the time. That'd be a really fun team to watch. Um, and I still think the 2022 team is going to be a lot of fun team to watch too mm -hmm. because of Dior and because of Khalil Ware. Um, regardless of that, I just, you know, the program – even after a relatively disappointing season is certainly still headed in the right direction overall. We're going to finish with some diamond sports and, and we preface, preface this early. So I, I don't think Matt and I are going to have a whole lot of contributions to this part. Because <laughs> frankly, we don't watch baseball or something Come on, you too. at least not the ducks um, as closely as, as you do. Um, but yeah, this is a question from go quack go. Um, and he even says, this is a question for you. Question for Jared Mack. Oregon baseball is off to a hot start. Is this sustainable? Any chance of a trip to the College World Series? We should also note, like, it was a hot start, and then they just got swept by UCLA. So, it, are we are we are we are we concerned at all? Like, I'll, I'm going to add that. Are we are we more concerned with the most recent outcomes, or are we feeling really good just based upon the fact that it was it had been a really good start up until this last weekend? Um. Yeah, I still feel good about the team. Um. But I've been saying this for a while now that while the team is good and while the bats are hot, um, you know, the biggest concern here is starting pitching. Um, and if you follow the team and you follow me, you follow the program at all, um, you'll understand that that is the biggest issue. Um, it doesn't take too long in looking at the stat books to realize that starting pitching is a, is a necessity for any good program across the country. And it's something that Oregon has been putting together with glue and duct tape and two-sided tape to try to just get through the first four or five innings of a game. Um, you have an injury to Adam Meyer, who was their Friday night starter, who's somebody who could be an MLB uh, draft pick. 
like a top four rounds type of guy. He's got great stuff. That's um, still undisclosed. I've asked Waz, a, I don't know, probably eight or nine times at this point. I'm sure he's sick of me. Um, I've asked Adam myself, and he says, I asked him if he's feeling good, and he says, not really. So it's an interesting thing to have. Um, Andrew Moziello was a guy who was also injured. He came back two times in the last two se- or series. Um, Tommy Brandenburg is another kid who came back, a freshman who hasn't necessarily lived up to the hype that his own coaching staff has built for him. Um, he's somebody that Oregon thought would solidify that Sunday starter. He has not. Um, Isaac Aon is their Saturday starter. Um, he he has MLB stuff. Just sometimes he puts it together and sometimes he doesn't. Um, you know, he put it together for a seven-inning complete game against shoot, who do they play? Um, a team. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I was there, but he put together a seven-inning complete game, two earned runs, six or seven strikeouts. He was really great that game. Goes out the next weeks and, and doesn't go three innings. So this constant up and down roller coaster that this Oregon has as a rotation is really frustrating um, because their bullpen has been very good this year. Um, despite being swept by UCLA, their the team as a whole allowed just three runs out of the bullpen over three games, which is really good. And they all came in the Sunday. So Friday and Saturday, they were lights out. And they've been lights out for most of the season, especially Rio Britton back there, the lefty. One of the two lefties they have on the team, which is not a lot, in case you didn't know. So the the bats are going to be fine. They went against UCLA, who is an absolute you know, powerhouse in the pitching department. You know, They're one of the best pitching staffs in the country, let alone the Pac-12. I'm not worried about the bats. They should score, I don't know, probably five to eight runs a game, just like they had been doing until UCLA. The question will be, can the rotation and the bullpen combine to give up less than five to eight runs every day, especially in Pac-12 play? I'm not worried when they play Ball State this next weekend. Even though Ball State's a good program, they've been doing well this year, but um, I think the talent gap, especially on offense, would be too much because this offense you know, absolutely rakes. I don't have to even talk about it anymore. Everybody knows how good this team is offensively. Um, but, again, pitching is – is the one real concern, and that's a very real concern. So, in question of stability of the team, I think they can, I think they can get to the postseason. I think they might not host a regional because I think it's a very good college baseball year. Um, college World Series is going to be very difficult. They need Adam Meyer by then to even make a chance, and even then, I don't know if it's enough compared to when you have, I don't know, if UCLA and Arizona start to get it together, that could be dangerous. Um, but and, and am I and am I concerned right now? Not really. Still pretty early. Still have a chance to get people back and um, get more into a groove on the pitching staff. But it is. Um, I, I'm not really concerned after the UCLA sweep either. I think I predicted it in the preseason that they would be swept by UCLA. So it happens. It's baseball. They're still 18 and 10. So they're still one of the better teams in the conference. So they just keep on keeping on for now. Real quick, um, the the baseball program, Jared. Like, mm-hmm. is this is this season at all somewhat of a surprise? Like that to me is where is is it sustainable or not? Where it's like if you go in thinking, hey, we're only going to have three or four guys that are that are going to be our you know consistent hitters. 
Um, but all of a sudden, you know, start of the year, maybe that number grows to six. And is it more so of just, hey, three guys are just playing out of their mind and that's kind of hard to sustain? Or is it is this team kind of living up to expectations? That's how, To me, that's how I define, like, sustainable success. Not to go back to basketball, but, like, Garrett Sim, that first year under Dana Altman, like, he shot, like, a career-high percentage, or maybe it was the Sweet 16 year, his senior year, yeah. Sim had like a career year. Like there was no way he was ever going to replicate that again. Um, and so like his success, I don't think was sustainable. Um, is this, is this team kind of living up to expectations? Um, I'd say this team is exceeding expectations and that's only because they lost so much from a year ago. Um, they lost their entire rotation either to the MLB draft or to, to transfers last year. So that's another reason why this rotation is really in shambles because they had one surefire dude coming into the season and now that dude's injured. So that's another. So, um, and then for uh, offensively, they, they lost three of their biggest bats from last season um, to the MLB. A couple other guys just graduated. You know, that's how college works. Um, they had three guys coming back who you knew could be good enough. You didn't really know if they were going to be like all Pac-12 guys or first team or second team conference players. Um, and then from there, it was kind of just a mosh pit of, well, I don't know. So when I did my starting lineup uh, predictions, I had no idea. I had three guys, Josh Kachovich, Anthony Hall, and Tanner Smith, who I knew were going to be – oh, and Jack Scanlon as the catcher, um, who I knew who were going to be like set in stone. These guys are probably going to be running out there on the first day of the season. And then the other five are really up in the air. But the other five have been tremendous this season. Um, Brennan Malone has been a great designated hitter. Um, I think he might see the field actually soon enough, maybe against Ball State. We'll see. Um, you know, he's hitting over 350 with five or six home runs, uh, over 20 double or 20 RBIs. Um, Colby Shade, I think, is still hitting over 400 this late into the season. Uh, the split catching duties between Josiah Cromwick and Jack Scanlon have been really good. Um, Josiah Cromwick is the king of, of uh, extra run home runs or multi, excuse me, multi run home runs. He's got like four of them this season. Um, Gavin Grant is hitting th over 300 and has more home runs this year than he had in his prior two and a half years at Oregon. Um, Sam Nowitzki's done a very good job for Drew Cowley, who was hurt after he had his handmate bone in his in his hand. Um, after he broke the handmate bone in his hand and had his handmate hook removed from his hand. Uh, Drew Cowley, though, that's another guy that I haven't even mentioned. He's hit still, technically, still hitting over 500. This is a guy who was just absolutely raking to start the season, breaks his hand on a swing and then strikes out and then is out for the next four weeks. But we should theoretically be seeing him back on the field soon. Um, but all those guys have vastly exceeded expectations, but it doesn't seem like they're getting lucky. It seems like these are very well hit balls. These are uh, really good plate appearances. These guys are drawing walks. These guys are understanding the strike zone. They're putting together competitive at bats. They're clutch. Um, so I think this is sustainable, but certainly this team so far has exceeded my expectations of how the season would go. Um, I thought they would be a postseason team for sure, but um, now they're definitely going to be one, and they just need to keep on this trajectory that they're going. It's going to do it for us. 
here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back tomorrow breaking down Oregon spring football and another practice, another day to speak with Dan Lanning, Oregon head football coach. Until then, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.